So a couple weeks ago, we started a series of conversations called This is the Way. Uh, and yes, that is just shameful pandering towards anyone who is also a fellow fan. We've got some people going, yes, in the back towards Mandalorian. And, and really, uh, Derek's powerful message last week about truth was so good. If you didn't hear it, I encourage you to go back there. He just so expertly weaved together uh, issues of philosophy and theology and science all together. Just this idea of truth really goes right along with what we're talking about in this series. We're exploring what it means to be the church, not just, you know, separate individuals, individual Christians, but members of the body of Christ. And this is important for us to come back to every once in a while because often what you hear in church or sermons, you hear a lot of messages about you and me as persons, you know, like our relationship with Jesus. And those are good. That's very good. It's important. Your personal relationship with Jesus is important. But we don't often talk a whole lot about our identity as people, right? of this 2,000-year-old we that we are a part of, they're super powerful and uh, they're helpful in addressing uh, a lot of the mess that, uh, you know, we find sometimes the church in today. Even the word church, we can't just throw that around real naively, can we? Right? Have you ever, like, invited a neighbor to church and their, like, first reaction is kind of like, you know, acting a little sick about it. And uh, because there, for some people, church has been sort of painfully corrupted. Um, maybe you come from a bad experience uh, with, with the church, or maybe you come from a church that was sort of just really hopelessly, you know, tangled up in, in politics or something like that. Or for other people, church has kind of just become this uh, quaint little weekly singing and teaching events that have no real world impact. And that's so shallow compared to how the New Testament envisions the gathering of this new humanity people that we're to be. So, so we're going to talk about some interesting things today. I want to warn you, just the first part today, you have to hang with me. It's a little dense. We're going to be going through some, some scriptures we have to slog through. And I just want to be upfront about that. There's some high scriptural concepts but then I promise it's going to be glorious about five or ten minutes from now. It's going to be wonderful. Uh, but the first part, just I'm just be honest, it's not as much fun, okay? Um, it's okay. But bonus, there are no goats. We're not going to talk about that. So if you were here two weeks ago, you're going to go, yeah. Okay. Uh, we're starting out in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. If you have everybody when you turn there, we'll have the scriptures on the screen too. But in Ephesians chapter 1, he launches into this really this beautiful soliloquy. Oh, it is so, uh, it is, this is like high theology. If you're kind of a theology nerd uh, like me, you just, this is beautiful stuff. This is like, oh, this is like Nirvana, uh, the band, not the myth. It is, this is good, good stuff. It's this gorgeous piece of literature. It, I think it stands up there with anything human beings have ever written. Um, just combines these breathtaking co concepts of uh, philosophical concepts. But I'm telling you, it's so good. It's almost like, it's almost like Paul had help writing it. Hmm. Um, but we're going to kind of, we'll, we'll start in the middle. We're going to skip through some areas here, and I'll kind of stop every once in a while just kind of catch us up, because it is kind of thick language. Um, he's in the middle of talking about God's 
great power. And then he says this in chapter 1, verse 19. He says, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. And Paul tells us that Christ now sits far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the what? The church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Okay, this is thick stuff, I know. But here's what Paul is getting at, okay? Paul's big claim here, his, his thesis statement he's making is this, that God exerted his power through Jesus to defeat the powers and the principalities of the world, and to exalt Jesus to this place of like cosmic lordship, right? So Jesus has this victory over these universal hostile powers, and he now puts his enemies under his feet. But what Paul also reveals here is that this cosmic victory that Jesus has won, it actually functions as a sort of public demonstration, like a monument, a declaration of God's power over the enemy and his systems, that that there's this new order that has been established in the earth. Now, pay attention because what Paul does next, after he's, he's, he's made this big claim here, he gives us two examples of what this victory looks like in real life, okay? One example we're all familiar with, the other one may surprise us a little. So here's the first example. He says this, as for you, now again, don't get thrown off by chapter two, right? There's no paragraph, uh, there's no chapter breaks when Paul's writing this. Uh, no verses. He's just, all, he's writing the next line. You know, a few hundred years ago, someone decided to make this chapter two, but Paul doesn't, he's just writing the next line here. Uh, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Okay, this is Paul's super eloquent way of simply saying one of the ways that Jesus achieved victory for everyone to see is that he took us, you and me, human beings who were enslaved to this lifestyle that leads to death. We were in the grip of those cosmic powers and he brought salvation to us, okay? He says, because of God's great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace that this has happened. I don't know about you, but this sounds like good news to me. This, this is gospel. I, I think this is good news. We'll see. Let's see, verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seats us up with him in the heavenly realms so that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. It is by grace you have all been saved through faith. faith. And this not from yourselves. Oh, we could talk about that for a while. There's no time. Scott, there's no time. But the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. But we are, and we is corporately, that's us as a church. The, y'all, the yous are all y'alls, okay? If he was speaking Southern English, he'd be saying y'alls. We, the church, we're God's work of art, his handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now I know, super thick stuff here, but the point is simply this. Demonstration number one of Christ's cosmic victory is you and I have been set free from sin. 
We're no longer enslaved to these hostile cosmic powers. And we, we have a fancy word for this, don't we? Salvation, right? You've been saved. We say, are you saved? Yeah, I'm saved, yay, right? Makes sense so far? Not enjoyable, I get it, but it makes sense. Okay, great. At least we're not talking about pan, okay? Just <laughs> reminding you, no goats today. All right, next, let's see here. Uh, oh, there it is. That, yeah, that would have been helpful earlier. There you go. Demonstration number one. Now, next, he's not changing the subject. Remember, he's, he's moving on. He's going to give us now example number two of how Christ's uh, victory works itself out publicly. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles. Now, who is that? Who's, who's a Gentile? That means you're not, you guys are so smart. You're not Jewish. Simple as that, right? Now, this whole Jew and Gentile thing, this is a, an ethnic division. Um, in Paul's day, there were these horrible ethnic divisions. We have no idea what that's like, right? Oh. In Paul's day, Jews and Gentiles would level all sorts of slurs against each other. For the Jews, they were like the chosen people of God, so that, you know, they received the Torah. They were circumcised, which was a sign of the covenant. Um, Gentiles, they would refer to Gentiles often as, in different Jewish writings as dogs, pagans, just idolaters. Um, so instead of seeing, you know, their own election as God's chosen people as something to bring blessing to the Gentiles, what had happened over the centuries is they just saw it as evidence that they were superior. The Gentiles, for their part, they looked at the Jews and saw them as these crazy, weird they even called them atheists. They thought the Jews were like atheists because they only believed in one God. They didn't believe in all the gods, right? The Jews had never really been that powerful as a nation, and that was kind of pathetic to them. So their God wasn't considered, you know, impressive, not even remotely. It, they thought they, the Jews held these weird customs, like they didn't eat bacon, meat candy. They didn't eat it. They thought that was weird. They, they washed their hands in these weird formal-like ways. And in their temple, it was really weird. There was no God in there. There was no statue. You walk into their temple, it was like, there's like this dinky little Ark of the Covenant. That's all they had. And so the Gentiles constantly, from all over the world, were just constantly trying to eradicate the Hebrew people. So there's tons of animosity between these two people that went back centuries. Again, something we just, I'm sure, can't imagine what that's like. So that's sarcasm. Yes. So I want, I want us to understand what Paul's referencing here is um, just take like the worst civil rights violations that we do experience today. You know, like the Ku Klux Klan, whatever, ISIS, white supremacists, Antifa, you know, whatever you want to just take whatever is like the, the terrible, the worst of what other people can do to each other, who hate each other in our society. This is what Paul is addressing here. This is worse than Aggies and Longhorns. Not by much, but it is worse than that even, right? And here's what's really wild. In these church, these two ethnic groups traditionally had all this hostility. We're now worshiping in the same church, the same churches. All right, so he says this. Remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised. Uncircumcised was in quotes here because it's a slur. It was considered a slur. And this was the biggest conflict that Paul's letters address in the churches. How do we have these Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians mixing it up? He says, therefore, remember that formerly you were called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. That's a fun team name, right? Can you imagine that on a jersey? We're the circumcision. We're number one. Number, uh, verse 12. Are we still in 12? Yeah. 
Remember that at that time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenant, he's talking to Gentiles, of the promise, without hope, without God in the world, but now in Christ you were once far away and have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our what? Our peace, our shalom, is that concept of shalom. Now, what does he mean by peace? Well, he tells us, who has made the two groups, those groups that were once hostile, one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of their hostility. He goes on. In 15, he says his purpose was to create in himself one what? This phrase is so important. The one new humanity out of the two of them, thus making peace, and in the one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. So what he, the point he's making here is really important for us to understand. He's not just talking about two people who just kind of decided to start being nicer to each other. What's happening here is a true miracle of the heart. You know, you can't legislate the heart, right? We can pass laws and make people get along. But what's happening is a miracle. This is a miraculous work of God. He's the one responsible for reconciling these two groups together. They're not only being reconciled to God, that's salvation, but they're being reconciled to each other. And he came and preached peace to those who were far away, that's referring to Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, that's referring to the Jews. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, y'all, it's a plural church there, y'all are no longer foreigners and strangers to each other, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household built on the foundation of apostles and prophets. In him, the whole building is joined together to become a what? Holy temple. Okay, this is, I think we're getting to, to the end of the big text block, so you're, you're almost there. Now, why does he say this? Why does he say that these people, this church, he's raising into a holy temple? Let, let's just take, take about two minutes and do a deep dive into temple language. Temples in the ancient Near East were not just places of worship like we might imagine them to be. They were monuments to power, you know, we have like separation of church and state. If you go down the street, you see a church, you wouldn't think it has anything to do with the government. That's just a church, right? But in, in the ancient Near East, temples were not just religious institutions. They were political entities. There was no division between religion and politics. It was all the same thing. So what would happen if nation A went and conquered nation B? Uh, what, what you would do is nation, uh, nation A would go over there and they would deface nation B's temples, and they would erect temples of their own gods and goddesses uh, in that captured enemy space, right? Because they thought it was believed that the warfare that went on on earth was a reflection of warfare in heaven. And so that if nation A won, that meant nation A's gods were more powerful than nation B's gods. And so you would build a temple in that enemy space as a monument to you and your God's victory. It'd be a monument to the victory. So here's what Paul, this is so cool. Here's what Paul is saying Jesus has done in the church. We have to think kind of like a a first century, uh, you know, ancient Near Easterner here. What Jesus has done, that through his death and resurrection, Jesus has now formed a people. And that people, both in our personal salvation, you know, that first example, and in number two, our willingness to reconcile to each other, that we, the church, now stand as a temple, as a monument in enemy territory, as examples of God's 
victory, his power over those powers. So, you know, you can think of today a little bit like Paul's picture of the church is kind of like, you know, the picture of an American embassy that's in some other country or something like that. It might, we have embassies that are smack dab in the, ca- in the middle of some capital of, of a, you know, foreign hostile country, right? And, but that little parcel of land, if you can, you know, get past the gates and you can make it into the embassy grounds, that little parcel of land with the U.S. flag waving over it behind the security gates, that is a piece of the good old USA, right? Right there in the middle of like communist China. That's a little piece of America right there. Now, in our case, it's a little different because we're not, we don't have guards at the gate worried about protecting our kingdom embassy from the big bad old world out there, you know. We don't have locks on the gate. Our gates are wide open, right? Because our, the, the church is a living monument. We're a living temple that is actually growing and expanding into hostile territory through this miracle of, number one, our salvation, Number two, our mutual love and reconciliation that the world gets to witness, all right? They will know you, Jesus said, they will know you by your love. Yeah, they'll know you by your love. Is this making sense so far? Okay. Now, we're coming to the big aha moment. So, let's recap the claim Paul's making in case I've lost you. Here it is all in a nutshell. God is exerting his power through Christ to defeat the hostile cosmic powers, right? And exalt Jesus as victor. He's Lord of everything. And then Paul points to the church and says, hey, church, guess what? You are a temple. You're a monument to that cosmic victory of Christ. And he demonstrates it in two ways. The first is your salvation from enslavement to the ways of death, right? We've been set free to new creation ways of living. The second had to do with these two groups that were, had hostility are now reconciled together, the world had never seen this happen. People who were enemies now living in this sort of impossible state of unity and shalom. Okay? Not super thrilling. I understand. It's not going to help you balance your budget. It's not going to help you grow a thicker, richer head of hair. But this is such a bigger picture of what we normally consider as happening in the church setting. Now, what I want to do next is give you some specific examples of, from scripture, of how this was lived out in the early church. This church-wide ministry of reconciliation that puts Christ's victory on display. Because what we realize really quickly, if you go, you start reading the scriptures, the early church was not like perfect by any means. They weren't just all a bunch of perfect saints all of a sudden. Uh, They were, but what they were was very serious about being countercultural, about being kingdom forward, right, in the way that they promoted shalom in their midst. It was different from what anyone else was doing. We have to really understand that. And I think this is going to help us, uh, it'll serve to help us understand our own mission as a church today when we're done. All right, so these three uh, examples, we're going to see they represent some massive controversies that were going on in their day in the early church. And they were all threats to shalom. They were fractures inside the church community. They weren't necessarily like theological debates. They weren't like big doctrinal debates. But they were threats to shalom. And what we might call, they were issues of injustice that get called out. Now listen, I understand. When, don't let today's politics like make you get all twitchy when we use words like injustice or justice, Okay. Uncle Scott's going to take care of you, okay? Just, you can trust me. I understand modern American culture. Here's the thing. Modern American culture does not get to own these words. Can we agree with that? Right? These are Bible words. 
Bible words. The word justice in the Bible simply means to make right. To make right. Justice is what the ministry of reconciliation looks like in the real world. It's what reconciliation looks like with skin on, right? Um, the, The prophet Isaiah said, this is actually what God wants to see you doing. He says, learn to do right and seek justice. And here's how you do it. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. The prophet Micah said the same thing. Act justly. It's the first one. <laughs> Act justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly. Oh, we have such a shortage of that today, don't we? So, now I get it. So, today, it's hard. It's hard. It, it's like, automatically, the brick walls go up. Because in today's environment, justice brings up all kinds of issues, especially, you know, the phrase social justice. We hear that. And that's not controversial at all, right? Social justice? No. Yes, because you start talking about that in our culture today, and it evolves into phrases like woke or, you know, CRT, or uh, the other day I heard DEI, that's the new CRT. Uh, White privilege, liberal, social, you know, gospel, socialism, systemic racism, cultural Marxism. We've got tons of isms going on in our world today, do we not? Yes. And so as God's people, it's so important that we step back and say, what is the kingdom? What is the kingdom way? Because we're Jesus people. It's so easy. It's way too easy to be shaped by the media. The media, by the way, loves for us to be fighting, right? That's how they make money, is to foment uh, people getting angry. They want to turn this into a partisan conversation. And it might be. There is, I mean, there's a lot of disagreement out there, but but we want to be a biblical people. And so justice is a big biblical theme, okay? It's, it's, it has been perverted in a lot of ways, but the world doesn't get to own the concept of justice. Can I just say that again? Amen. We're going to take it back. Amen. So when we use this word, don't, don't read anything partisan into it, okay? Um, truly, the whole Bible is the story of God justifying human beings. He's putting us right. That's what justice does. And the church, we get to participate in that work. And we do that as a monument to the powers that Jesus has won over. Okay, here we go. Example number one from the early church. This is in the book of Acts chapter 6. It says, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews. Okay, what does that mean to be Hellenistic? Those are Jews who speak? Are Greek. Yes, that's right. Greek. These are Greek-speaking Jews, okay? So, like, over the centuries, Jews had sort of emigrated all over to the Roman Empire, and there were now Jews all over the place, and, and they were proselytizing, and there were new people becoming Jews who were, like, from different countries now and all this kind of stuff. So, there's all kinds of stuff. So, these, these are, are Greek-speaking Jews. In those days, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews. Those are the Jews who spoke what? Hebrews. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Hebrew. Uh, now, so notice, this isn't a religious difference. They're not arguing about religion. It's something way uglier than that. This is racial animosity, okay? They're both Jewish. They both, you know, believe in God. But the Greek Jews were those who had gotten converted from European Greek ethnic groups. The other Jews, you know, Israeli Jews, they see themselves as, you know, the true Jews. They were like the, the pure ones. Different ethnicities, different languages they spoke even, so... But they're all Jewish, and now they're coming together as Jewish Christians, right? 
And notice why they're complaining. Because the Greek widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So they got the Greek-speaking Jews, had to, what they did is go to the apostles and say, hey guys, you know, it's interesting. Uh, you know, our widows aren't being cared for and they all have this funny thing in common. We speak Greek. And this had, like I said, this had been an ongoing issue between Greek and Hebraic Jews for centuries. But now the church leaders are like, wait, wait, wait a minute. We are part of this new humanity. We're part of this kingdom of Christ. So this seems wrong. And, and they saw an injustice. They saw people being excluded from the table and going hungry in the church. And they immediately put this at such a high priority, the apostles did. They appointed leaders to fix it. And then they recorded the whole thing for us to read about. Isn't that cool that they did that? Because that's what justice is. It's restoring shalom. Are we tracking? Restoring shalom. All right, here's example number two. This is from 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, Paul records that there were uh, these people in the church in Corinth. Never a dull moment with those guys. Uh, Corinth. But there were people who were actually getting sick and dying because they were taking communion wrong. Now, I've heard some different opinions on this passage. And uh, it's a super weird passage. And someday we'll, we'll spend some time really teaching on this. But as it turns out, just like in Acts chapter 6, it's really a total justice issue. Here's what Paul says to them in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, in the following directives, he's writing them a letter, I have no praise for you, for your church meetings do more harm than good. <laughs> Can I get an amen? I think we've all been in those kind of services. In the first place, I hear that when you come together, and what he's talking about here is the common table, right? Sharing meals across these ethnic, social, gender lines was, back then was one of the most important political and theological statements that the early church made, because it really was unheard of. Nowhere else, nowhere else did this happen in the Greco-Roman Empire. Nowhere else. You have to understand that. But he's like, when I hear you come together, there's still divisions. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt. There have to be differences among you. And he's being sarcastic here. Just to show you which of you has God's approval. So then when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. So he, now here's where he, what he's critiquing. For when you were eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Do you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating the poor, those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not. After this, he goes into that little portion that we sometimes read at communion. Um, you know, on the night Jesus was betrayed, uh, he said this and did this. And then he says this in uh, 27. Anyone who eats the bread and drinks the cup in an unworthy manner, he says that they're basically they're sinning. And they, he goes on to say that this brings judgment upon themselves. And this is why many of you have fallen asleep. And he's not saying you're, you know, literally getting sleepy. He's saying, no, you're like getting sick and dying. Like people are getting sick and dying. Now, I used to read, hear this and read this, the passage that it was saying that like whenever you take communion, you know, it was, the, the message was, well, listen, you better, you know, be careful you don't have any sin in your life. Be careful you didn't do anything wrong this morning, right? Make sure you've got done like this moral inventory before you put that cracker in your mouth or, you know, you might keel over. Um, but when you read the passage in its whole context, it has actually nothing to do with your personal perfection, it has everything to do with these rich Christians who are shaming the poor Christians during communion. And this is what gets God so upset. And it becomes clear because he says this, Lexi says, so then my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. So what we find out as you read through this passage 
in this letter is that the rich Romans, they were eating first. And they were even getting drunk. At one point, he says, they were getting drunk on the communion wine. I mean, good, good Lord. And they kept the best food separate from the poor Christians who were like left with the crumbs. You can read it yourself. It's amazing. And then, so this is what gets God so cranked up. That what was supposed to portray this new humanity, it didn't. And, and instead, it was just fissuring along the same little lines as culture did. Like, they were acting the same way as, like, the regular culture did. And so rather than the communion being a public monument to Christ's victory, they were actually denying his victory by just doing the same old thing, following, falling into those same old patterns. All right, one more example. This, uh, this one is not as dramatic no one died in this next example. Uh, in the early church, the first like true multi-ethnic church that we hear about is the Church of Antioch. Just this awesome place. The reason why it was such a big deal was because Jews had always been taught that they were not even allowed to eat with Gentiles. They had to keep distance between them so they wouldn't be unclean. How insulting is that? No, I can't eat with you. I'll be unclean. Um, but all of a sudden, people are getting saved, right? They're coming to this church, and the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians are sharing a meal together. And we're like, we'd be like, big deal. But that was such a big deal to them. And that was big news. It was big news in Roman world. So Peter, at this time, you got to think, this is, you know, after Christ has come, he's died, he's risen, he's gone to heaven. So Peter's one of the great fathers of the church. You know, he's kind of probably this old guy by now. He's a big deal. And he comes down from the church in Jerusalem, He's like the bishop, you know, Peter. Here comes Peter. He comes down to this church, and he's eating in the common meal, you know, with the kids. He's eating with these, you know, all the new Christians. And it looks like, it makes it look like he's really down with this whole new humanity thing. Like, ah, oh, Peter's so cool, right? Here's Peter. But what happens is some folks from the old school Jerusalem church, they show up at the church to see things. And Peter chickens out all of a sudden, and he pulls back. And Paul writes this, when Peter, that's Cephas, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Paul, bless his confrontational little heart. He just steps in there. And again, this isn't like a theological issue, but this is a failure of shalom, justice. He says, for before, before these Jerusalem guys came, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the Jewish group. And the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. And by that hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the, what? Gospel. So for Peter, is this like a minor technicality of protocol or is this like a gospel issue? Yeah, I would say so. I said to Peter in front of them all, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not a Jew. And how is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Now, in the context of, of Galatians, this was a major call out. And we don't have time to look at it all. Hallelujah, everyone said. Um, now, what do these three things have in common? These three examples from the early church. Notice they're not splits over doctrine. They're not fighting over theological theories of atonement or, you know, deep little issues like that. What are they dealing with? Fractures within this new humanity 
There's fractures across economic lines, right, in one instance, across ethnic lines, racial lines, right? I'm not reading into this. This is what the text is saying. And the work that is involved, like when Paul confronts Peter, that's the work of justice. That is reconciliation made manifest. I have a t-shirt that I love. It says, justice is love out loud, right? And that's such a great, I love that. I love the way it puts that. Justice is love out loud. Because you can love, you can say, oh, I love and just feel things and think nice things. But you're going to put flesh on it. You're going to do something about it. That's justice, right? So when the apostles had to make sure that the widows were being taken care of, what's that the work of? That's reconciliation. That's the work of justice. Again, don't read partisan into this. Stay back. Say, no, 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 partisan, stay away. No, no, no. This is just how the community of God is supposed to act, right? We, we pursue shalom. We see something fractured, we pursue shalom. And here we are, 2,000 years later, sitting in Spring, Texas in Generations Church, right? And we realize we still have some work to do, don't we? We don't live in a perfect world yet. Our world is fractured, and I'm not just talking about arguments over who gets the last donut in the North Foyer, right? No, there's, there's fractures, there's arguments, right? I'm talking about listening when people say they feel overlooked. We're making sure that our table is big enough, the actual table, making sure that no one who desires to learn about Jesus or desires to pursue Jesus comes in here and feels like a second-class citizen, nobody, right? It's about listening to our brothers and sisters who experience injustice in everyday life in ways that others of us just can't even imagine, right? I fully recognize that I am a 52-year-old white dude. I do not experience injustice in the way that my brother and sister might, right? And so it's important for me to lean in and listen and not just be like, ah, that, no, that can't be, no, race doesn't matter, right? Yay, church. No, we have to lean in. We have to listen. That's all part of it. That's part of reconciliation. It's part of making it right. And so we don't think that reconciliation or justice work, that's not an extracurricular thing. It wasn't to the apostles. It wasn't to the early church. It was the thing like that meant just as much as everything else to them, right? It's central to the gospel, Again, don't go all partisan on me. Justice isn't defined by what some politician says or a college president says or some protester with a flag or something like that. No, no, no. Justice just means making it right. Making right. Making right. When the world looks at us, they should see something different, right? They should see something. They should be like, man, look at, look at those Christians. Look at those evangelical Christians all into justice. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah, they should see love in action. They should see a church that's so committed to each other that our, our unity, it speaks louder than any picket sign ever could, right? We always say we're, we're about unity over uniformity. We don't have to look alike. We don't have to act alike. We don't have to believe everything just right. We don't have to vote for the same things. No, that's not what unity is all about. Because let's be real, our, our world is polarized, right? Man, we live in a weird world right now. There's no joke. I mean, just no question. Absolutely. You can't even talk about coffee uh, without that being like this debate about trade rights uh, and, and water ethics or water rights or something. I don't know. But in the midst of all this, 
in the midst of that. The church has got to be a place where we can gather around a table, yes, an actual table, and share life with people who might not look like us or think like us or vote like us. Why? Because that's what the gospel does. That's what the gospel does. It brings us together across the divides and says, your family, your family, amen. And we want the world to see us, to get a glimpse of Jesus' victory. That's the monument. We, we get to be. Our reconciliation is a monument to the world to look at and go, oh, look, Jesus, that, he did do something. There was an effect on the planet what Jesus came and did, right? When they see that, when they see us living differently, talking differently, treating each other differently, even treating our differences differently, serving selflessly when they see us doing that, that is going to draw people to Jesus. The Bible promises that will draw people to Jesus. It makes a promise, right? Jesus says, when I'm lifted up, it will draw all men to me, right? That's what will save the lost, right? Not the slogans we shout, but the love that we show. Galatians Three, I, I couldn't get away without reading this verse. It's so good. In Christ, we are all children of God through faith. And this right here is just one of my like top three favorite verses in the whole Bible. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, nor slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This was the victory chant of the early church, right? This was the song of people who were re- redefined by the resurrection, in a world that's, that's so fragmented and frayed, we are called to be weavers of shalom. It's a holy calling. It's a holy calling. And some people, I, you know, I've had people ask me, like, well, Pastor, what kind of, what kind of church are we? Um, you know, are we, is this like liberal church? Are we a conservative church? And I'm like, you know, we're just really not concerned with checking off that box. That, I, you know, what we're trying to be is a faithful church. We want to be faithful to a Jesus who crossed every line to reach every heart. We want to be faithful to a kingdom that turned the world upside down. Amen. Faithful to a gospel that calls us to be agents of reconciliation and architects of shalom. I want to be an architect of shalom. Do you? We may not agree on everything. Let's face it. Have we ever agreed on everything? Right? I don't even agree with my wife about everything. I don't agree with my best, I have best friend I, I go have lunch with, and, and every, every time we always talk about the things that we don't agree on, and never once have I thought this might divide us. It's always just something that, like, it just makes me love him more. I'm like, yeah, this is amazing. I'm learning something every day, right? We're bound together by something so much stronger than opinions. Last scripture, last scripture. Paul says this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of what? Reconciliation. That God was reconciled the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. And we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. Now look, we're going to do it imperfectly. We're going to be hypocrites. I know we are because we're, we're human beings, but we're going to keep trying, right? We're going to keep trying to do it better every day. When we live out justice, when we bind up the brokenhearted, when we stand with the oppressed, when, when we walk alongside those who are marginalized, we are declaring that Christ's victory 
It's not confined to the past. It's not like a one-time event that happened 2,000 years ago. And it's not something that only shows up, you know, after you're in the sweet by and by because you're dead. No, no. That his victory is alive and active and on display today. His victory is on display today. So this week, whatever you're doing as you go out these doors later, as you gather in your home life groups, as you gather around your dinner table, or you sit around coffee with a friend, Remember this, every single act of kindness, every moment of of understanding rather than jumping to a conclusion, right? Every effort to like bridge a gap and understand the story of someone who is different from you, every single one of those moments is holy. Those are holy moments, right? That every time you try to understand something that you didn't know before about somebody that is holy, that is the church being the church, that's our answer to somebody who's asking, what kind of church is this? We're a Jesus church. We're a Jesus church. We're a shalom church, right? We want to be a home for the spiritually homeless and the emotionally shipwrecked. That's who I want to be. And as your pastor, there is nothing more I could ask for. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Lord, oh, Lord God, first of all, I am so grateful to have this community of believers and sisters, brothers and sisters, where we just get to... I, wrestle with these things. I find it so compelling, Lord, the work that you invite us into. It's so much bigger than just, you know, sitting here in a room listening. But the work of participation you invite us into, the work of reconciliation and forgiveness, serving one another and blessing and praying, praying for our enemies, blessing those who persecute us. I mean, that's a lifelong work. And God, we need you in this because it's just so easy, Lord, to be immersed in our cultural waters that call us to demonize the other. So Father, we pray for just a pouring out of your Holy Spirit in this place. Really, that the the fruit of the Spirit, that that fruit would be the kindness and the gentleness and the patience to be with one another as we work this thing out that we're doing together. And God, we ask that you would more than anything else, just reveal to us every day how beautiful you are. Lord, I know it in my mind. I know it intellectually, but I forget. And so, Lord, to that end, would you just bless us in the name of our Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Our prayer partners can come forward right now. Our prayer partners, you guys have a a little meeting after church, I think, today, our prayer partners do. But if you're here today and you need prayer, you need someone to stand with you in faith, we invite you to come up and let one of these precious people pray with you. We don't believe in walking alone. Nobody should walk alone. If you're going through it alone, you are doing it the hard way. Uh, so come, come forward, let these guys pray with you. Whatever it is you're going through, whatever miracle you need from the Lord, we believe in a God of miracles. We believe he has a better tomorrow in store for you. And so let us pray for you. Amen. Would you stand to your feet as I bless you before we go? Friends, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of the Father and that communion of the Holy Spirit be with us until we can be together again. Amen. Grace and peace. Bye-bye.